Welcome to the Go Find Out Podcast. I'm Jennifer Jelliff Russell, author, speaker, and entrepreneur, bringing you actionable ideas and interviews with awesome women to help you pursue your dreams and achieve your goals. You can find more episodes of the Go Find Out Podcast by visiting gofindoutpodcast.com. Enjoy the show and go find out. Welcome to the Go Find Out Podcast, episode number 25. I'm your host, Jennifer Jella Russell. Today, I'll be interviewing Evelyn King about her journey to getting into fly fishing and what internal obstacles she had to overcome to get started in the sport. In my personal update, I'll talk about how the National Novel Writing Month, or NaNoWriMo, is going so far for me. And spoiler, after administering the local election on the 3rd, it's not going great. <laughs> I'll also talk about something new that I'm loving this week. All right, let's get to that personal update. It has been quite the week, listeners. (laughs) I'm recording this on November 7th, 2020, and we are still waiting to hear official word on who will be the next president of the United States. I made it through administering our local election, and the local election clerks and ballot clerks did an amazing job and kept things running so smoothly through the election and the ballot counting process. It was it was wonderful. So I'm so glad that that stress is over. <laughs> it definitely took a toll on both me and my husband since he acts as the election warden for our local election. We were at the election site from 9 a.m. until midnight, which is a really long day for us, especially since we tend to be folks who go to bed at like 9 p.m. Um, It was apparently a really long day for our dogs as well. Um, When we got home, we found that one of our dogs had taken the liberty of removing a bag of rolls that I had just made from scratch a couple of days before. Um, She took them off the counter and ate all of them while we were gone. I honestly, I can't really blame her. I I think we've all been stress eating this week, right? (laughs) Um, So I I did start out strong um, with the NaNoWriMo or National Novel Writing Month on November 1st, but then I didn't really write anything again until just yesterday. So I definitely have a lot of ground to recover, but I will, you know, it'll take me a little while, but I'll slowly chip away at it by writing a couple hundred words each day. If you're taking part in the National Novel Writing Month Challenge, I really hope it's going well for you. Hopefully better for you than it is for me right now. (laughs) I'm definitely thinking that I probably should have opted to write something maybe a little more fun than just like job seeker guides. While those are interesting, um, they're not really like super fun and they don't really like take me away from the real world right but it's, it's too late. I'm in it now. So I maybe I might add some like scary short stories to the mix just to kind of keep it interesting and fun. But we'll see. A little side note on writing. So the week before Halloween, I re-released a book of short stories for kids after changing its name and putting a new, more professional cover on it. It's like a book of scary short stories, right? And I, I didn't expect it to get too much attention, but I ended up selling over 50 copies of the paperback book. And most of those books went to buyers in the UK, which is super cool. <laughs> Um, I think that means that I can actually call myself an international author, right? (laughs) So I've decided that I'm actually going to try and get another book of short stories for kids out in time for Christmas. I was really leaning towards like scary stories, like a a Christmas scary tale and then other scary stories or something along those lines. But I'm really struggling to kind of make Christmas scary. makes sense. So it might turn into magical holiday stories or magical Christmas stories or something like that. But I figured something that is holiday themed might do really well since the Halloween themed book did pretty well for kids. So so we'll see. It should be an interesting challenge to get it out before Christmas. So I will keep you guys posted on how that goes. 
So this week, what I'm loving. So what I'm loving are affiliate programs. In case you're not familiar with what affiliate programs are, they're basically when you sign up with a company to receive a kickback for marketing that organization's services or products, right? So the kickback is usually in the form of like a monetary payment, but it can also be in the form of like free services or products from that organization or company. But you only get that payment if somebody uses your affiliate link to sign up for that organization organization services. That's a lot of wordy stuff right there. Um, So basically, if I talk about a product on the show, I will tell you, hey, this is an affiliate product. I've dropped a link in the show notes for you guys. If you use that affiliate link, I get basically a kickback. I've heard other podcasters and YouTubers market these affiliate programs, but I was really initially kind of wary of signing up for any kind of affiliate programs. Honestly, it felt a little skeezy to me, right? But after a little while, I realized that a lot of the podcasters and writers who I respect and listen to frequently, that they do some affiliate marketing, but they specifically only suggest products or organizations that they themselves use. So it's basically organizations or products that they trust. So that's what I'm going to do. So if I talk about any products, and again, I will tell you, hey, this is an affiliate product, it's going to be an affiliate product or service that I use or that I really believe in that will actually help you instead of just like throwing products at you. So I hope you don't mind me doing that. But again, these are actually things that have helped me. So for example, during the last episode, I talked about Canva and they actually do have an affiliate program. So I was kind of like, oh, well, I truly use Canva for all of my social media promos. I also use it to make both the logos for the show that I've had. So I signed up for their affiliate program. With Canva, you can create engaging images for social media like Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, as well as a ton of other things. Like I mentioned, you know, the logo, you can also create posters. I actually created a poster this summer for the local farmer's market. Super easy and really fun and bright and vibrant. And then you can also create book covers on there too. And personally, I use the free version of Canva and it does everything I need it to. I would say I'm considering stepping up to the pro version, Canva Pro, just because it would give me access to more of the pictures that they offer. Because if you sign up for the free version of Canva, you do get access to some of the pictures, but not all of them, which just means that for me, because again, I use the free version, when I need a picture that's not on there, I will just jump on like a free photo website like Pixabay or Unsplash and download some of their free media. But going up to the pro version could really save some time because you'll have access to all of the pictures right there on Canva and you won't have to play the go search somewhere else to download and then upload to Canva to create the image that you want, the final image for Instagram or whatever that you want. So like I said, I'm going to try out the pro version, see how it goes. And I'll, I'll let you guys know if the if I think the, the pro version is worth it or not. If you guys would like to try, the free 30-day trial of Canva Pro. You can actually do that by using the affiliate link in my show notes. So check it out. Again, with the Pro version, you'll have access to more pictures and then you'll also have more uh, access to tools like being able to resize your final image. And then there's actually a really cool tool that they have that allows you to remove a background from a photo and just keep the parts that you want in the foreground. So it's pretty cool. I will, again, I'll drop my affiliate link in the show notes. So check it out. Sign up for a free, you know, 30-day trial of Canva and see what you guys think. 
All right. So basically with the affiliate thing, I, like I said, it's the thing I'm loving this week. I'm really liking the idea of signing up for other affiliate programs or products or services that I specifically already use and I love and being able to offer a discount or special to you listeners to try it out and see if it helps you guys out. All right. So that was a rather long update. Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, So enough about what's going on here. Let's go ahead and get to the interview with Evelyn. On today's show, I'm interviewing Maine guide and avid fly fisher and certified casting instructor Evelyn King about her journey of getting into fly fishing and her passion for helping other women discover a love for fishing by starting the Maine Women Fly Fishers nonprofit organization. Welcome to the show, Evelyn. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. I'm super stoked to have you on. I think when I was emailing you, I said that, you know, my husband might be fangirling a little bit because I was going to have you on the show and he's a, a fly fisherman. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, super exciting stuff. But before we kind of get too far into this, can you can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I was born in Canada and I grew up on the St. Lawrence River, but at the age of 10 we moved down to Maine and I and when we moved to Maine, we moved to a a very wooded area on Sebago Lake. I traveled quite a ways to go to school, but in the afternoons, I would definitely spend time in the woods and on the water. So the outdoors was a big part of my childhood. But I also, my great-grandfather was Luther, Dr. Luther Halsey Gulick, and he founded the Campfire Girls, and he started a summer camp, Camp Ohilo, on Sebago Lake in 1910. And so a big part of my childhood and my adult life has been being involved with empowering women through outdoor activities through summer camp and you know being a camper as a young child and then a counselor and then ultimately I became a fourth generation camp director oh cool yeah so that was my youth and then I have been married for 40 years to a Maine lobsterman. He just recently retired. So now he's my full-time equipment manager for fly fishing. (laughs) (laughs) And and I work in a law firm. I assist representing commercial lending. I do a lot of investigative research on real estate, do title research, and a lot of the document preparation for huge lending projects, you know, hotels in Portland and Mm. nursing homes and, you know, big projects. So the fly fishing, I've always tried, I went to Bowden. And I've always tried to balance my life with the academic side and the outdoors, you know, nature side. And so when I took this job in Portland 12 years ago, I was working independently before that, and I could control my day and get outside during the middle of the day when I wanted. Mm. And then when I took a full-time job in Portland, then I realized I had to maximize my outdoor time on the weekends. And that's when I really got involved with the Maine Women Fly Fishers and fly fishing all the time. So that that's where we are now. Nice. Makes total sense of, you know, recognizing, okay, I need this, this balance of indoor and outdoor, especially if you're, I don't know if you're sitting in front of a computer most of the day or if it's more. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I totally get that as somebody who writes and is in front of my computer doing podcasting most of the day in the summer, my way to get away from the computer was gardening and farming here in Maine. But now that's, you know, winter is coming. So (laughs) So I have to find some other methods to kind of step well, away from the computer. I recommend ice fishing. <laughs> and that, that's something recently we've gotten into. I used to ski all the time at Sugarloaf. And when we mm. stopped going, 
going up as much. I said, we really need to find an activity outside in the winter. Mm -hmm. And ice fishing is a hoot. I mean, it's just, it's really fun. Nice. I'll definitely have to try that out. We do some snowshoeing and we bought some cross-country skis, but, oh, good. but yeah, ice fishing would be fun too. Well, can you tell me like how and when did you actually first get into fly fishing? Well, that's a funny story. I met my husband when I was in high school and he was an avid fisherman and part of it was fly fishing, part of it was spin fishing, but definitely he got me interested then. And we would just go um, fly fishing in small streams and catch little tiny brook trout. But most of the time he would go off with his guy friends. And then once in a while I would go with him. And if there was no other gentleman around, I would fish and I would fly fish, but I was always kind of very much insecure about my skills, like mm. um, like we've talked about. So it, if ever we were on a pond and we were fishing and another canoe came up, it showed up and there were men in it, I would stop fishing and pull out my book and pull out a bottle of wine and, and sit in the bow, which was really lovely. And I never minded, but I wasn't about to show my skills to anyone else. And my husband at that time, my boyfriend kept saying, you know, Evelyn, don't do that. You know, these guys aren't any better than you are. And, you know, nobody cares. You don't have to be able to cast well to fly fish. So definitely I felt like I was an imposter and it took a long time, but I finally did realize, you know, and I started to continue fishing when people showed up and every once in a while I'd catch a fish and when someone else wasn't and it just fed on itself, you know, I became empowered, but I think because he believed in me and, and kept encouraging me. So I can fully empathize with women that are intimidated to start. Mm. But on the other hand, I, oh, I so want to encourage people to, to do it, to not worry about who's around you and whether they know to fish or not, because often the people you're fishing with are imposters. You know, they may have the best equipment, you know, that may be a guy that has all the Orvis gear and the Helios three rod and all the best flies, but he may really only know a small portion of what there is to know. And there is a lifetime of learning with fly fishing. So everybody's on that spectrum. It's just one end or another, but you never need to feel intimidated. And you definitely don't need to know how to cast to fly fish. Yeah. One of the things we were chatting about before we started recording was, so my husband fly fishes and I am interested in trying it, but like you were saying, it's very intimidating. You don't want to necessarily feel silly when you try to fly fish and, you know, having, like you said, other people around watching you is definitely intimidating and it just makes me not want to go. One, I think one of the reasons is that fly fishing is, is very different, right? From regular fishing. Can you kind of explain the difference between the two? Oh, sure. Fly fishing, well, spin fishing is a great way to get new people into the sport, into the sport of fishing. It's something that anybody can do with spin fishing. My understanding, and I could be wrong, but my understanding <laughs> is that the weight of the lure is what propels the line out. So you basically, with your rod, you chuck the lure as far out as you can go and the line goes with it. And you're using, you can be using live bait or, you know, a metal lure or something to attract the fish. Whereas fly fishing, it's the weight of the line that it carries an unweighted fly out after it. And so the method of casting your rod is you're trying to get the line to propel in a straight path to let the fly land on the water gently as far out as you can. But on the other hand, with fly fishing, as you're learning and your casting isn't as good, it's good to know that the majority of the fishing that we do with fly fishing is in a small river or an area where there's moving water. And you really just have to chuck the fly out or the nymph, whatever 
whatever you're using to get it into the water and then the moving water moves it. And so the casting, although it's what people think of with fly fishing, you know, the river runs through it, it's the image, it's beautiful. But in reality, the joy of fly fishing often comes from just getting the fly out in the water and a fish tugs on the fly and then you have a fish on the line. Um, the other thing that's different is with the spin casting, You, like I said, you often use real bait, live bait, whereas with fly fishing, you're trying to entice the fish with an artificial fly that's either imitating a bug or a nymph or sometimes a little bait fish, you know, like Carrie Stevens' gray ghost is imitating a smelt pattern. And there are times when your fly, fly fishing, will attract way more fish than an actual live bait fish. You know, there's just sometimes, especially when there's bugs hatching, your fly can imitate a bug hatching, whereas a spin fisherman doesn't have a chance. So, you know, they're complementary, but I feel like with fly fishing, there's so much more to learn, which makes it a wonderful thing to be passionate about because you, you never learn it all. You know, there's so many resources you can go to to learn more about the bugs and the water and the casting and the and the guiding and and everything and the flies themselves do you do you tie your own flies yes well i i do use other people's flies sometimes but i love to um, tie flies and i do it quite a bit in the winter Mm. um and you know there's some patterns that i will only use mine but then there's some patterns that are really hard to tie and you're apt to lose the fly on the second (laughs) cast you know there are a lot of the nymph patterns that are heavily weighted that are going to get caught on a log at the bottom of the river then you know, I don't, I don't bother to tie those, Mm. but that's a whole art in itself. And one of my other passions has been making jewelry, silver and glass jewelry. And that segued into the fly tying perfectly because it's that detail and the, you know, I love working with the materials. Mm -hmm. It's a very intricate kind of thing. We've talked about one challenge, which is sort of that intimidation of starting, of being out there and casting and and fly fishing, especially among men. What would you say were your biggest challenges when initially getting into the sport besides the intimidation? Well, I think it was the learning curve in the very beginning. I mean, I can distinctly remember going fishing with, there were six of us couples, and one of the fellows worked at Inland Fisheries and Wildlife and was very knowledgeable. And I w- we were kayaking down the Androscoggin River and I watched him and I was driving me crazy because he seemed like he always knew where to be. And he had this, you know, he had this mission and he looked very purposeful. And I, w- I spent a lot of time that day watching him and thinking, man, I wish... I wish I had that depth of knowledge to, to be able to read this water and, mm. and to be able to figure out the fly. There were so many unknowns to me. And I think it was an obstacle, but it was such a good one because it opened my eyes to all the different things that you could learn. And I took that frustration and applied it to educational you know, lifeline. And I have, to this day, I have books on every aspect of fishing and I you know, listen to podcasts and I watch videos. And, and I, I'm now at the stage where I could go back to that day and just feel really good about taking that same trip. I wish I could go back to that day, but it's such a clear avenue for me. Um, I feel like in terms of the male population, you know, gender issues, the men that have been that I've been around with fishing have only been super supportive. And like working with this Maine Women Fly Fishers group that we'll talk about some more, we've had so many male guides that have come and spoken with us. And, you know, my husband's been so supportive and a lot of the other husbands. I think the only negative we've ever had is that some of the the younger men that hear about our program are wishing there were something like this for for men. Because mm. what we we have an audience that everyone admits 
you know, they're willing to admit they don't know a lot about fly fishing. And so we can start A to Z, whereas right. a lot of the guys have been fishing for a number of years, but they really haven't had access to that kind of resource. And they don't want to admit that they're still learning, but they're very interested to hear what we're doing. But yeah, so I feel like I have always felt like I've worked in collaboration with guys and they have always been very appreciative of what we're doing and supportive and contributed. And and in sometimes there've been a few times when men, will say things that they're kind of in awe about what's going on. And that takes a lot to admit. I mean, I think that's really cool. And I've enjoyed that. And we've always been open with the Maine Women Fly Fishers. We've always held meetings that anyone could come to. You know, it doesn't matter your gender, your race, your religion, anything. It's just that we started with the idea of giving women a, an opportunity to have a group of other women that were just learning. And along the way, we've added in, you know, it's an open platform. Hmm. Okay. As you started getting more into the sport, did you get any pushback for being a woman in the fly fishing world? No. Yeah, I never, never got pushback. And in fact, I got sort of elevated to a, a position in Sebago Trout Unlimited where they really wanted me to come on board to see what I could do to help promote fishing with women and, and get more women involved. And I felt once again, sort of like an imposter, like, I don't, mm. you know, who am I? I don't, I don't know what I can do. But at the same time, I was getting involved with casting for recovery. And I could see how empowering it is for women to get together as a community and learn a new passion and be on the water. And I could see all the positive things. So I felt like this support I was getting, I could run with it. You know, I should accept the challenge. It was put there for a reason and, and run with it. And it's been really satisfying. And so we've talked a couple of times about the imposter syndrome, and it sounds like you were kind of like, okay, I'm just going to accept the challenge. Did you do anything else to kind of deal with it, that feeling like an imposter? Or, you know, was it just a matter of pushing through? And oh, no, absolutely. I I figured I wanted to learn personal skills, learn how to cast better and learn how to fish better. And so I figured any challenge I took in that direction would give me more skills and give me more confidence. And so I undertook to do the registered main guide program and passed the guides license, which was really exciting. It was a great learning tool. And then I also went ahead and enrolled in the Fly Fishing Federation uh, Certified Casting Instructor Program. And when I first started that, you know, it was clear that my casting wasn't up to par and, and I wasn't doing it to be able to say, I'm an expert, I can teach. I did it so that I could have the skills to better myself, but also to be able to share them with the women in the Casting for Recovery or the Fly Fishing Group the women's group. But along the way, having these educational opportunities gave me confidence. So I no longer felt like an imposter, but I clearly have always been humbled by other people that I've met that know so much more. I mean, there's, like I said, there's a lifetime of learning. Mm. So you mentioned the main guide aspect. Can you can you give us a little bit more information about what it actually is to be a main guide? Yeah, it's a, it's a, Really fun challenge. Um, and I know a number of women that have gone ahead and done it lately, um, which is excellent because we want more women guides in the state. It starts out, obviously, you want to have a background in the sport, in this case, in, in fishing. You want to have a background and a confidence to know that you would do a good job guiding other people. You know, you want to be able to share your knowledge. But then to get actually certified, there's a number of programs, educational programs that will do a week-long course or an evening course to prepare you. Ultimately, there is a, an exam that the state of Maine Inland Fisheries will give you, and it's very intense. And so the, the educational part is learning 
you know, uh, uh, to identify all the ducks and all the fish and wildlife in Maine and to learn all about the equipment. But it's also primarily on safety too. you know, having the Mm. first aid background because they want to make sure if you're advertising yourself as a guide and you take someone into Baxter State Park, for instance, someplace where there's no cell coverage and someone gets hurt, they want to make sure that you know what to do, but also that under pressure, you will still be able to function and make good decisions. So it's actually a really interesting test because while they're testing you on your knowledge and your skills, they try to undermine your confidence Mm. and put a little fear in you that you've done something to screw up so that you suddenly are shaking in your boots and you have to keep going. And it was really funny because in the case of my test, they asked me what my guide experience was. And I said, I had been a camp director at summer camp for girls and, and we had done hiking trips and canoe trips. And I had guided on that. And one of the, one of the instructors, uh, the testers said, were you licensed to do that? And I all of a sudden thought, oh my gosh, what have I said? I'm throwing the camp under the bus. You know, was I licensed? Was I doing this legally? And so at the back of my mind, I'm processing this fear of what I've just admitted. But I confidently said, I'm almost certain the camp had a license that covered me, which was in fact true, but I didn't know it to be true. (laughs) And then, (laughs) and then after that, they asked me this sequence of questions about, you know, someone getting hurt on the trip and pretending these scenarios. And the whole time I'm just, you know, the back of my mind is like, oh no, oh no, oh no, what have I said? And it was really clever. And then there was another portion where they were testing um, orientation, orienteering, you know, map and compass. And as I had to do this test under a time frame, they were behind me talking about me. And that there again, it's, you know, they were purposely distracting me to see mm. you know, how, how I would do. And so when I passed that, I felt really excited because it was not, it wasn't a cakewalk. It was definitely something that you have to earn. Definitely a boost in confidence would be my guess. Yes. And, and so it kind of helps to like chip away at that imposter feeling. Right. Right. And now, so I was actually doing a little bit of research on Maine guides, and I just I thought it was really cool and wanted to share with listeners that the first Maine guide was a woman named Cornelia Thurza Crosby. Hopefully, I said that name right. Yeah, Crosby. Um, yep. And she was licensed in 1897, and she was like buddies with Annie Oakley. So just fun stuff. Um, but um, it seems it seems now that Maine guides are kind of predominantly male. What has what has that been like being a guide in such a sort of male dominated industry? Well, it is, uh, I, again, I feel like it's been a supportive thing. I, hmm, okay. um, I've been, I am so pleased that there are more women getting into guiding. And uh, because I do think there are a lot of women that really like, would prefer to have a woman guide. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I've gone as a sport with men guides in a mixed environment, like with my husband, you know, when we've gone traveled, we often get a guide. And Mm. most of the time, the guides pay 90% of the attention to me and only 10% to my (laughs) husband. So it's actually a real benefit um, Mm -hmm. to having a male guide. So but I feel like it's there are definitely guides in Maine that are probably not thrilled that there are it's, you know, women encroaching. I mean, you're going to have that in every vocation, avocation. But I think in general, the, the male guides are very supportive and, and helpful. And I, Cornelia, there's a Crosby, back to that. I mm-hmm. She is such an impressive figure. And I think right? it's so cool that she was really, she brought fly fishing to Maine. I mean, well, she wrote a lot about fishing in, in a local newspaper and she became an advocate for the 
Maine Central Railroad. Mm. And she actually went down to Boston and New York and started the idea of showcasing Maine in the sportsman shows. She built these log cabins in the sportsman shows, you know, an actual log cabin. And she had real guides and mounts of animals there. And her display was always the most popular display, like in New York City, you know, in, in Boston, her display of Maine fishing, you know, in the early 1900s. And she's really what promoted the idea that men could, or anyone, but at those, in that time, it was more men would come from New York City by railroad or steamship and then come and go up to the Rangeley area. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, using the Maine Central Railroad as part of the commute that opened up fly fishing for Maine. So she, you know, alone, and she, the reason she was the very first guide was because she was an advocate for promoting guide licenses and for, you know, limiting catch, like in the old days, you would see these pictures of men with 30 fish on a string. You know, they weren't eating all those fish. They were just catching them as trophies. And she was really an advocate for, you know, a catch limit and licensing guides and getting more money for inland fisheries so Mm. that to help promote the safe sport, you know, safer fish. Yeah. Yeah, it's so cool, isn't it? Yeah, it's really cool. With guiding, do you find that you tend to to do more guiding trips with with groups of women or with groups of men, or is that pretty equal? Primarily the guiding that I do, because I have a full-time job, I do a lot of volunteer guiding, but I also do guide instructionally um, for groups of women. If I'm on a sort of a private guiding day, I would take, you know, often I'll take one or two women with me to a river and we'll do the A to Z. We'll talk about anything they're interested in, in terms of learning the skills, but also trying to catch fish. But I more enjoy sharing the knowledge where some guides will just, you know, tie a fly on and not really explain their thought process. I'm much more apt to try to empower women or or couples or any group to figure out what's going through my mind when I look at a body of water. I have... Yeah, I have limited guiding time right now, but um, because I do volunteer a lot, but I do anticipate in a few years, I'll be backing off on the the real job and and doing a lot more fishing. Um, And I really look forward to that. I feel like this kind of brings it to the teach a man to fish, teach a person to fish, right? Right. Ironically, right, about fishing, that you're not just putting the fly on the line for them and giving them the the rod and just being like, okay, go for it, right? Like you're actually teaching them, you know, sequentially, like this this is what we're doing now. This is why I chose this site. This is why I chose this exactly. particular fly or nymph. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I think that as you said that, I was thinking one of the fears I have is that there's so many more single family, single parent families in this generation. And, you know, traditionally it was the fathers that would take the sons and sometimes the sons and daughters out fishing and to carry that forward. And nowadays there are an awful lot of families mm-hmm. where the, the dad isn't around to be doing that. And so I'm really excited about getting more women to fish so that they can pass it down to their children and their grandchildren. And it's really fun. Like we were on the St. George River this spring, or yeah, I think it was this spring, and we were fly fishing away. And all of a sudden across the river comes this woman with four kids and there's no dad around and she's lining the kids up with their fly rods and she's, you know, getting them all set. And it was the most exciting thing to see because yeah, those are four kids that will, they'll learn it from their mom. And we, we need more women to get into it in order to pass it down and to get more daughters fishing too as well. <laughs> And so I do just want to backtrack for a second because we've, of course, we've touched on the the main women of fly fishers and a little bit about what it kind of is. But can you can you give me a more in-depth definition of what the main women fly fishers is, like what they do? And I think we had already kind of talked about what prompted you to start it. Sure. I got involved in the 
in starting the Maine Woman Fly Fishers because I was asked from Sebago Trout Unlimited. I was brought on the board and they had a very impressive goal to get a thousand women fly fishing in the next five years. So I took it on and there were a couple, at that time, there were very few women in the audience of of Sebago Trout Unlimited. And what I found quickly is that when I was put up in front on stage, you know, I would talk about things that we were doing. The women that might be apt to look in the door and see all women in the group actually would come into the room and single me out afterwards to talk to me because they were so excited that there was a woman there. Um, So I quickly realized the power of building a community and being, you know, showing up, just showing up. And so we, there were two other women that were involved right from the very beginning and they helped me get together this agenda. And we just, you know, we just started coming up with things like, could we offer a casting lesson? Could we, you know, have a meet and greet at a brewery? And we quickly went from having two or three events to this last year before COVID. I think we had about 35 events over the year where we would have once a month very regularly um, have a meeting at a brewery or at Muddy Rudder, have dinner, and we would get a speaker. And I would, you know, try to reach out to other women that were in the sport, but also men guides. And each month we um, would address a different skill. You know, it might be tying knots, it might be entomology, you know, rods and reels, lines and all. And there's an endless supply of material. And then we started doing, even from the first year, we offered a learn to fly fish, you know, 101 fly fishing for women had a group of mentors get together. In the beginning, it was mostly men helping. And this last year when we did it, it was all women. Wow. And all women that had started with our program. So the oh, idea- That's so cool. Yeah. The idea that we were teaching and then empowering this, the people we were teaching to pass on their skill for them to realize too, that they're not imposters. You know, they may not know everything there is to know about fly fishing, but they can know enough about their one subject matter to be able to share it with newbies. So this last year, we had an all-day event in, in Poland at one of the state parks at Rang Pond, and it was so rewarding. It's so exciting. So one of my goals was to build a community. And I feel like of all the goals I had, that was the most successful because we, and we built the platform on um, Facebook. And as much as I don't love social media, when you're trying to get a group of people together that from all walks of life and all, it's a wonderful platform because I, we would get people to join and then promote our events there. And then every event we had, we would take pictures. And that's something that I realized qu- quickly on is that part of empowering women is showing them in their fly gear or in an event where they're actually doing it. It's like they're, we're validating that they are fly fishers. And so they love the pictures. And so it grew from there. And I think we're almost to a thousand members on the Facebook page, which is amazing. And we just have hosted, I mean, I was going through our, my file on names and email addresses. And someday I'd like to tell you the number of lives we've touched, you know, actually in person, you know, obviously on Facebook, you can have people that will never attend an event, but I think there's a good portion of the people that have attended, you know, one of the events. And we have a good cluster now of women that almost reliably come to every event. And we have a small core group. There's three other women, Sonia Dore and Anella Linton and Lauren LaChapelle that really help now with the administration of the group planning and you know organizing and then we have a, a larger group of about 15 that have been helping over time and really you know we couldn't do it without them and then uh, and then 
and then we pull in the other guides when we need to. So yeah, you've definitely successfully created a great community that's very welcoming for women to jump in there and kind of test out the water, so to speak. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I want to also ask you, what habits do you feel that you have that have made you successful as a fly fisher? Oh, well, you know, that's a good question. I get to be quite obsessed with things. <laughs> so <laughs> obsession is definitely uh, well-placed in fly fishing. Mm. And for me, it's been a lifesaver because it allows me to let go of other obsessions, you know, worrying about politics or worrying about COVID, other things. I find that being able to obsess about fly fishing puts everything else on the back burner and it lets me calm down. And I do love, I love to learn. And I think, as I've said over and over, that the, there's an endless amount to learn with fly fishing. And there are so many people that are willing to share. You mentioned in our early conversation about Megan Hess, who has provided a couple of different entomology classes for our women's group. Mm. She's just, you know, out of the goodness of her heart, she just has, she has so much knowledge, but she loves to share. So there's great opportunities. But I think the main thing all fly fishers have, have found it helpful is being able to live in the moment mm. and really pay attention to the details, you know, be paying attention to what's going on around you and what's going on in the water. And are there bugs coming off the water? Or do you see fish, you know, you stare at the water for a while and just calm down and, you know, kind of Zen. It's very meditative watching the water. And do you see the little nose of the fish coming up to eat something? All of these clues, if you just run to the stream and throw your fly out, you'll never see it. But if you actually slow down and sit for a while and calm yourself, you learn so much. Most people that you see that are good fly fishers are really able to do that, really concentrate. Yeah, definitely slowing down, calming yourself and paying attention to your surroundings, I think is something that can be really applied to to a lot of different things. So that's that's awesome. That's really, I think, really right. great advice. Yeah. <laughs> what do you feel like you would have missed out on had you not pursued fly fishing? Oh, my word. The <laughs> biggest thing is all the, fr all the friends that mm. I have made. Um, I think in my uh, life now, the people that are, are so important to me, you know, that have really enriched my life, are, I've almost met them all through fly fishing. I mean, I've met through work, I've met some wonderful people, but, but the people that you, sh you know, you share a passion with, they become your lifeblood. And I have so enjoyed uh, seeing a group of women work together, you know, on this Maine Women Fly Fishers group. I mean, we've had a couple of meetings where we've had 15 women together over a, a meal and their enthusiasm and seeing them, you know, take this on outside of their daily life is, oh, it's just, it's, it's, it's empowering to me. And, and I've really enjoyed it. And I, and I guess when I say the word empower, one of the, a couple of the best examples I've had too, that have been so rewarding. Um, there were a couple of girls that were in their 20s that showed up in Portland right about when we were getting started with Maine Women Fly Fishers. And they didn't, they moved to the city to work and they didn't have a group of friends. And I encouraged them to meet up with me at Novera Riss for a beer and, and introduce them to each other. And then through time, they've stayed with the Maine Women Fly Fishers and become really good. I mean, really good fly fishers coming from, you know, not much experience at all. And they have taken that on as their passion. And, you know, one of them writes these beautiful blogs about finding her passion. Lauren LaChapelle has written, you know, a number of things about how important fly fishing has been to her in her life. Hmm. And then Christy Holmes, who now has spun off and done uh, Maine Women Hunters, hmm. she was involved with us quite a bit and then realized that there was room to do this for, for women hunters. And she has a really successful Facebook page with that. And she she's really paralleled her career with what we've done. And I think the Maine women have really enjoyed that. So 
you know, it's these examples when I've been able to give back and then I see other people running with it because of that exposure, you know, that is so rewarding. And if I had only fished for myself and not done the main women fly fishers, I never would have experienced that. Mm. And what advice do you have for women who are interested in getting into fly fishing? Oh, just do it. Like for you, <laughs> make sure you go out with your husband. And, but I think don't, don't set yourself up to have to be, you know, an expert. There's so much to learn. And, uh, and I, I mean, I've taken women on the water that haven't only been spin fishermen and, and I don't even bother to teach them how to cast, you know, unless they really want to, it's just getting out there, getting the fly out there and, and feeling that, it, you know, the tug is the drug, having a fish on the line, having a fish take your fly. As soon as you get that feeling, it gets a life of its own and you'll want to learn more. But with the Maine Women Fly Fishers Group, you know, we've kind of been on hold because of COVID, mm. you know, limited too. We, you know, we're restricted with what exposure we can have with groups of women, but, you know, assuming things will get better, we'll be back on track and we offer, um, we'll be, you know, going back to offering monthly meetings and learning to fish opportunities. So if someone wants to join the main women fly fishers on the Facebook page, that's where we post all our events. But in the meantime, what we've been doing is having people that are interested in getting out to fish, just post that they're interested. And if there are other women that are going out, you know, maybe they can tag along, you know, it's, it's trying to develop that community, even though we can't be together as a group that people can network on the Facebook page and ask mm -hmm. questions. But I think just to get started, you just, you know, a hundred dollar kit from Beans or Cabela's that gives you a fly rod and a reel and, you know, buy some flies and go out with someone that has some skill, but even better if you can go out with a guide, you know, if you're willing to spend some money to do that, the guides generally will teach you quite a bit. I still go with guides, as I said, when we travel and sometimes locally to support their business. And I always learn something, you know, it's a wonderful way to spend the day and get new skills. Nice. What's the best way for people to find the Maine Women Fly Fishers online? Yeah, it would be on the Facebook page, Maine Women Fly Fishers, or you could go to Sebago Trout Unlimited, and there is a, a link to the women's group on that um, page. And if anyone wants to reach me directly, they can, um, Evelyn at EvelynKing.net. I have a, a webpage for the guide service, Evelyn's guide service. But if you just Google Evelyn King guide, um, it, you should be able to find it on Google search. Perfect. Well, I will also make sure, of course, to to drop all that information into the show notes. So it's very easy, um, clickable links along with your email address as well, so that folks can hopefully maybe get started in fly fishing. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Evelyn. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. And I, I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's fabulous to uh, to spread the word about empowering women and, you know, getting more women involved in things that they're passionate about. It's great. So a big topic that Evelyn touched on in her interview was imposter syndrome. So imposter syndrome is defined as a psychological pattern in which an individual doubts their skills, talents, or accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. Basically, you feel like you're not good enough to do the thing that you've set out to do. This is something that has been discussed a lot more often lately. And I think that that's great because I think that bringing these kind of thoughts and feelings into the light is the best way to combat them. 
I think everyone experiences a little imposter syndrome at some point in their lives. Some of us experience that phenomenon of feeling like a fraud more often than others. And I should add that though we feel this way about ourselves, we don't necessarily hold other people to the same standards, which is kind of silly, right? (laughs) For me, I get that feeling of being an imposter for basically anything creative. Writing works of fiction or creating these podcasts definitely makes me feel a little bit like an imposter. I start questioning myself during the process, especially the writing process, right? And I start thinking things like, who is ever going to read this? Or for the podcast, do people really want to hear this? Or is this really helping anyone? I also felt this way about running for a really long time. So being a slow runner, I I know I'm never going to win any races, right? And it made me feel like I wasn't really a real runner because of that. Like, sure, I could run, but could I actually, like, call myself a runner if I wasn't fast or if I would never win anything? And again, I would never hold anyone else to the standard, so it doesn't make any sense, right? If someone tells me that they're a runner, I don't ask them how fast they are or if they've won any races. Like, never, right? So why am I holding myself to the standard? Look, feeling like an imposter sucks right? It's very easy to let this feeling keep you from doing the things that you love or that you want to do because you feel like a fraud doing them. However, combating that feeling of being a fraud or an imposter is absolutely possible. For some people, it might merely mean pushing through those feelings and doing the thing anyway. For me, that applies to podcasting and writing. The more I conduct interviews and the more episodes I release, the more I feel like I can actually call myself a real podcaster. For others, combating their imposter syndrome might mean setting a goal, and by accomplishing that goal, it helps you feel less like a fraud. So for example, I did that with running by completing a marathon. I didn't need to come in first, or 100th for that matter, to call myself a runner. Merely doing the training for the marathon and completing the race was enough to help me kind of flip the script on how I viewed myself as a runner. And after all, how could I not consider myself a runner after completing a marathon? And I also have to say, when I did the half marathon in preparation for the marathon, that also really made me feel like a real runner. There's definitely something about having people like cheering you on from the sidelines when you're completing a race. Another method of dealing with imposter syndrome, as mentioned by Evelyn, is to continue educating yourself on the thing that you're trying to do. So for Evelyn, that meant continuing to learn about fly fishing from books as well as from other fly fishers. When it comes to imposter syndrome, sometimes the more knowledgeable you become on a topic, the less likely you are to feel like a fraud. So what tasks or goals do you feel like an imposter around, listeners? I'd love to hear if you found something that helps you fight that imposter syndrome feeling. You can DM me on Instagram at gofindoutpodcast or tweet me at GFO Podcast. All right, that's it for today. Join me next week when I interview career whisperer Sandy Golinkin about her journey of starting the organization Raising the Bar, where she provides one-on-one consultations, mentoring, and online classes aimed at helping job seekers of all ages identify the right career for them and land that coveted position. Until then, listeners, go find out. Thanks for listening to the show today. I hope you found the information beneficial and that it helps you tackle your own Go Find Out goals. You can find more episodes and the show transcripts at gofindoutpodcast.com. You can also let me know what you thought of the show by tweeting me at GFO Podcast or follow me on Instagram at gofindoutpodcast. That's it for today. Now go find out.